0: Hi there, my name is Jenny Rooney, Chief
1: Experience Officer and host of Adweek's newest podcast, Marketing Vanguard. We're so excited to bring you the next evolution of CMO Moves by bringing you insightful content from our marketing community. Together, we'll dive into discussions with CMOs and other C suite executives who are tasked daily with making decisions that, in incremental or monumental ways, move the needle for their brands, their companies, and the customers they serve. In each episode, we'll focus on one key idea or decision why they made it, what it caused, whether it worked, the ripples it set forth and how it has defined the person as a business leader. We also address missteps, poor choices, and gambles, as mistakes, of course, often yield the greatest knowledge. In addition, we'll ask each guest to share the names of people they rely on daily, as well as a recommendation for whom we should interview next. Maryam Vanakaram, it's so good to see you again. Nice to it not in person, but I always love talking to you. So I'm super, super, super excited um, that we're having this conversation. We have lots to talk about on this. Um, I'm going to say special edition of Marketing Vanguard. Um, and we're going to get into that. But first for people, those I, I'd be surprised, but anyone who does not know you would love for you to introduce yourself and just talk a little bit about what you're doing now.
2: Yeah, so you know, I've been um, a CMO for a very long time across industries, and a, um, about a year or so ago, I stepped in to do a special project really to help bring back New York City, not as a side hustle, which I did before, but as a full-time sort of project, and I'm part of a team, sort of a collaborative team of New Yorkers trying to help bring back optimism and drive civic action here in New York under the We Love NYC umbrella. Love, love, love it. So NYC Next is
1: is actually the organization that you founded, correct?
2: NYC Next is an organization I co-founded in the middle of the pandemic, really um, as a side hustle where a lot of us pulled together and ended up growing to be about 600 plus New Yorkers oh to help the city in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. yeah. And this project in some ways was born out of that project.
1: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So Listen, you mentioned that you, um, for so many years, you were CMO. And um, before we kind of unpack uh, what really is honestly the biggest headline for you in the moment, talk a little bit about your previous experience and what you're bringing to bear. I mean, you have so much passion for New York City, and there's just no denying that. I mean, I love hearing your story because you clearly followed your passions. you know, and you're living what you want to be doing, not that you weren't before. Um, but a lot of your previous experience and just becoming, you know, um, establishing yourself as one of the foremost marketing leaders in the industry came through a lot of work and a lot of other posts. So talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, you know, I I became CMO for the first time when I was at Univision, I was trying in my head, think back how long ago that was. But it's interesting because at that moment, when I went in to go work at Univision and then sort of evolved, because I joined really to be the SVP of integrated marketing, um, and when I stepped in to become CMO, it was kind of this moment because... Jerry Parencio, who owned Univision at the time, is really how I got promoted to that job. And then Jerry actually took me to go meet Roy Spence at GSDNM, and that's where I got to learn about purpose, which... kind of became my hallmark after that, but really that meeting with Roy who said, I don't want to do ads for Univision. I want to figure out the purpose of the organization. And that notion that, yes, obviously we were in the business where we made money, so it was a business, but that there was a difference we wanted to make in the world that was bigger than that, that notion that Jim Collins had really written about in Good to Great really spoke to me. And I think from then on, every role I had really became about purpose. So whether um, I left Univision when we got bought and ended up going to NBC Universal, doing purpose work as NBC and um, Comcast came together, and then going to Gannett, where you know, obviously it was in the middle of a very deep turnaround because local news was under huge pressure sort of tapping the purpose of those of us who showed up every day um, to evolve that company and then getting recruited to Hyatt, which was going on its own purpose journey, it sort of became the through line. And then even after I took some time off, it's what took me back into a day job at Nextdoor, right? So purpose sort of became my through line early in my marketing career, probably before it was a word that we all talked about. And I think for me, that really rang true because it was never – you know, I was the person who graduated business school making, you know, the least amount of money from my classmates. Like money wasn't the driver for me, even though, frankly, I was a kid who had student loans and had to pay your own way. I mean, I sort of inherently believed in this notion that you only lived once and that we needed to make a difference. You know, I wasn't like doing non-profit jobs, but I sort of felt like, you know, I needed to believe in whatever it was that I worked with and in that job, like tried to have as much impact as possible, and not just for myself, right? But I mean, I think for the organization as a whole.
1: Yeah. So um, there's two things I hear in your story, though. I, I certainly purpose, but I would add community to that because mm-hmm. I just feel like everything you represent and stand for, and the work you've been doing, in one way or the other, I would argue across the board, you can make a case for how you were building community, or you were serving community, or you were recognizing community, and you know that through line, I think now it's to me now what you're doing with nyc next is just taking that to
2: a next level you know yeah. literally you know it's funny i di- i didn't have that word for it back then right i mean i discovered the word purpose i did a lot of purpose work and then i think probably in the last couple of years that notion of community and how that was a through line that i did instinctively but didn't Correct. necessarily know to call out as you're pointing out is definitely true. And I, I, when I think back on it, I think, you know, as a kid who immigrated here in the middle of the hostage crisis from Iran, I um, the way I found belonging or tried to find belonging was by stepping in and getting involved. And that's how I sort of would find community. Mm-hmm. And so it's not surprising that I was sort of always as part of this like diaspora Um, having now experienced what I know to be called cultural bereavement, right? Like looking for the thing that you had lost, which there was no word for growing up. I think that sense of wanting to be part of a community was definitely core to who I was. It's interesting that I went back into the corporate world at Univision, where really that was a media company that was very much in service of the Hispanic community. And I joke that like all good Iranians should work in Spanish language um, (laughs) media. But I think it was core to like the culture in which I grew up, it was very much core to the Hispanic community. And I remember early on doing research to try and explain the Hispanic market to buyers who predominantly were non-Hispanics mm-hmm. and sort of tapping into this notion that people would call the station group for things that nobody would ever think to call a Fox station or an NBC or CBS station about, right? Because in, in a big way, Univision was the lifeline for a community who had moved here and was still trying to navigate the system. Mm -hmm. And so they would call to ask for a doctor, sometimes Mm -hmm. for a lawyer. Nobody ever called the NBC affiliate saying like, hey, can you tell me where to go get a doctor, right? It wasn't the relationship we had. So I think this notion of trust and respect was core to Univision. And in some ways, it sort of became the thing that unlocked for me because it wasn't a job, right? It was like way more than a job, and so you didn't have to be Hispanic to sort of take on that mantle because you understood the responsibility that came when you showed up every day.
1: Yeah, I mean, you obviously, you know, the folks who reached out to Univision, I mean, they felt they felt heard and supported mm-hmm. by Univision, and they ascribed that value. It's interesting because it's more of a you know i mean yes you were you were you were setting it up to be that but then it feels like it was when people truly feel part of a community
2: they feel like they own it yeah, I don't even think we. It's not like I think yeah. you know we set out to go build that. It was kind of a byproduct, right? It's kind of like a brand. It's not what you set out. It's what people perceive. And when you did the ethnographies or you went to do the focus groups, which I did with um, an amazing researcher Cyril Chagrin, who was you know renowned in the industries, it's what people told us. And it was when they told us that. Then it was like, it was so obvious. It was like, I mean, of course, when you sat in on the newsrooms, and I remember I went down to Miami when I first took that job, and I asked if I could sit in on the news meetings. And they said, you're the first person who's come from New York, from the business side, who's actually asked to sit in on news meetings. I said, well, I'm interested to know how you guys process what you're going to run for. I mean, you know, I sort of need to observe to understand so that I can then explain to others. And there was this sense that you were serving the community. It was very much a service-driven Media company, even though I don't think anybody would have used those words in that time.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's,
2: it was an instinct. So fast
1: forward to to the latest headline uh, coming out of your world, and um, I would be surprised if anybody hasn't been following the thread. But um, it's it's let's let's unpack it because I would love to hear your first person account as the force behind it and the visionary about you know about why. Uh, why you all went out to the world and to, to New York City in particular with with a new, um, a new platform, really, the centerpiece of which, and you'll kind of correct me if I'm wrong, was a logo that everybody sort of hitched into. Um, and it's a fascinating case study. Yeah. Let's talk about that.
2: Yeah. So, you know, um, I I had gotten to know Kathy Wilde, who is uh, an amazing, amazing person here in New York, who many consider to be the most powerful woman in New York, who really shies away from the spotlight. So she's not known unless you actually know her. Um, I'd gotten to know her again when we launched New York City Next, because again, it was sort of a grassroots movement that was trying to help the city. And early in the pandemic, we started getting to action when most people were sort of frozen, particularly organizations, because of all the risk mitigation things that got in their way. So when we did that moment for Broadway, you know, just imagine a handful of New Yorkers coming together, figuring out how to get the Red Steps in the middle of the pandemic when no permits are being given and getting Bernadette Peters and 24 other Broadway uh, performers who won many, many awards to come together and use their voice out loud together in that moment that we really amplified on social and digital we got connected to all kinds of people and we'd get on these phone calls and we'd be like, why are we on the phone? Like we're nobody. Like we'd be on the phone with these like very um, storied professors or heads of different um, organizations. And one of the people we got reconnected with was Kathy. And I think what she really appreciated was the hustle of this group of just New Yorkers who purely we were doing this for their love of the city and the ability that we had to not just have good ideas, but make them happen and happen quite quickly. That's sort of what bonded us together. Um, you know, I, I don't know if everybody knows, but Kathy sort of was a community activist at her core when she first moved to New York. And so I think she sort of recognized that in somebody else. And so in February, she said to me, when I go to a meeting with her, I was still at next door. And when I went to this meeting with her, with one of her CEOs, he basically said to her, you know, the partnership needs to lead. We can't wait for government to just take this mantle alone. This is really actually very um, original to the founding of the partnership because the foundership, the partnership was founded by David Rockefeller and Felix Rohaden when they actually helped the city come out of the financial crisis in the 70s, right? And so that she sort of heard that same message saying, um, you can't wait, we really need to come together and mm-hmm. find a pathway forward. And she said oh, well, you know, meet Miriam. And I was like, wait, what's happening? So when we left, she said, would you consider leaving your job to come and sort of lead this effort? And so pretty quickly, I reached out to a friend who I'd gotten to know, Pear Peterson, who was a very big name in the advertising business. We were both on a board together. And I said, I was looking for an agency to help me with this project if I was going to take it on. Mm -hmm. And um, he introduced me to founders and Really, at that very first meeting that we had, um, it was just a get to know you. They showed up, and one of the early things they showed me literally in that first meeting was the I Love New York mark with the heart animating. And it was such an obvious thing to look at, mm-hmm. and um, it sort of was this immediate like recognition of like, okay, they're, they're strategic and smart and, and clever. And I think that's what sort of got us going, but we began to do research to figure out what the backdrop of the city was, right? Sixty-some percent of New Yorkers at that time were very concerned about where the city was headed, even though we were coming out of the pandemic. What year was that then? That was... That was 22. And by the way... We just redid the study in 23 in February, and the numbers are not better. Um, even though the city feels like it's more alive to those of us who've lived here, because it is more alive than 2019, when mm-hmm. you have people come from other places, they'll say to you, things aren't open at night the way they used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, The fit- city feels a little dirtier, a little less safe. And, and you know, you... Keep reading those headlines, whether they're accurate or not. It's definitely a perception for not only those of us who live here, but, you know, even more for people who who don't live here. Can I I pause? Can I ask you really quickly, going back a
1: step, what was the brief or what was the ROI that you were hoping to get out of this campaign? I mean, what did success at that point? What did success look like?
2: Well, I mean, we had a one line brief, which was to remind New Yorkers that this was the greatest city in the world and to mobilize them to action. To
1: action. So it wasn't that you wanted more people to move there. It wasn't that you
2: wanted more people to take jobs there or anything like that. It was just it, it was for New Yorkers, right? So yeah. it wasn't a tourism campaign. It wasn't yeah. a you know go back into the office campaign. It was you know, and I go back to it, for me, it sort of came out of New York City next in that We needed to remind each other why we love this city. Like Mm -hmm. nobody ever moved to New York thinking it was easy or cheap or, you know, there's none of of the reasons we came here, right? But Mm -hmm. to your point from the very beginning, this was the city that made many people, whether they were born here or moved here, feel like they belonged. Mm -hmm. And that sense of like, are you going to give back to the city that gave that to you was Mm -hmm. really at the core of the insight for us.
1: Yeah, and it's not going to get implied is it's not gonna get better if we don't do something about it. It's At the bad. end of the day we can complain all we want or we can point fingers, but really it's on the onus it's on. Is on
2: yeah. yeah. And it's interesting, um I my husband pointed me to a documentary the other day on Benjamin Franklin and he said, you know, it's interesting he has a similar idea, which is he believes in self reliance and the collective good. Yeah. Like those two yeah. things are not diametrical opposites. They're not. They're not it, mutually exclusive. Yeah. New York is a very good example of that because we're a city of individuals and yet we're at our best when we come together. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that makes New York amazing is that it's complex, it's diverse, it's got lots of energy. It's also the thing that makes it very difficult to make change. So the idea that, you know, one mayor, one governor, one council person can make, you know, just make Big seismic shifts. It's not really realistic because it is complex here. It is big. It's dense, eight point five million people. That's a lot of people living in, you know, not that much space. So I think this notion that like it belongs to us and it's time for us to come together to, you know, try to make a difference. And so that's where I say to you, it was kind of born out of New York City next because we weren't elected officials. We weren't in these day jobs. We all were just doing it to help. And in doing it, we all felt better. We actually found community. We got connected to new New Yorkers who cared about the same things. And we felt less lonely, right? Like Jennifer Reingold said to me, you found purpose out of despair. We found purpose out of despair. And we lived it. And what was interesting was that we weren't alone. There were many other people who were doing their version of New York City Next, whether it was Sasha Gutierrez, who was pulling together with her neighbors in Brooklyn and singing on a stoop in Brooklyn, or Katie Savage, who had been laid off and started doing litter pickup in Hell's Kitchen. You know, New Yorkers are doers. They get to doing. They can't help themselves, right? And I think we sort of thought, okay, if you could sort of create a movement of these doers, celebrate them as the heroes of New York? Could you inspire others? To find ways to step in. And whether that's joining a New York Cares volunteer activation, picking up the litter, like Jessica Tish is suggesting today, um, you know, with her sanitation department campaign, or coming up with your own version. Like, you don't have to fit into a mold that exists in a volunteer category. You can do what we did with our neighbors, which is invite neighbors to join you at a long table on your street and have 500 neighbors show up with friends and food. It's like, there is no limit. And I think New York is a city of no limits when we actually step in. And that's what we know how to do. Um, I want to come back
1: to that real quick. But like, it's interesting, you say there's all these little um, examples of people who are already coalescing and actually driving change in a given area. Um, How are you capturing those case studies and then sharing them back out as content? And or, although I know this treads kind of into, I don't, I'm not thinking ahead of my question here, but like, is there a way to... Award certain efforts, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. you know, like, and I hate to say that people need incentive, but sometimes people are doing such extraordinary things that they like a spotlight or something that gives them a little bit of, you know, impetus or or even further uh, opportunity for wanting
2: to do and share. I
1: Just put that out there for sake. No, of I,
2: I I think that's a valid thing, right? I mean, um. We, we very much are focused on New York doers. That's what we call them. And we started collecting these stories of New Yorkers who stepped in, like Katie Savage, like Barbara Anderson, who was a teacher with her daughter who started doing art in the avenues and using empty storefronts to showcase art, or Melissa, who came together with some dancers and figured out a way to use the Roof of the Empire Hotel to actually hold dance performances in the middle of the pandemic. I mean, there's a lot of them. And you'll see on the website, we have about 11 of them featured today. Yeah. Um, from, you know, Anthony Edwards, who started something called Eat Okra, where you can actually use an app to find and support Black-owned restaurants and food stores, which has now gone national. So our goal is to find more of those stories and amplify them to the point that you're making, Jenny. Like, you and I know there's lots of lists, right? The Time 100, there's just, you know, 40 under 40. And my headline is like, really? We need a New York doers list? Mm -hmm. And we need to celebrate them? And my idea always in the back of my head, and we'll see, we'll see if we can make it a reality, is... I want to celebrate them in their communities, not at a gala in an amazing, you know, indoor area. But my idea in my head when we first started was wouldn't it be amazing to celebrate them with their neighbors in their community on all the open streets that we basically set out in the middle of COVID? Um, because really the joy for them is being recognized by, the, by their neighbors, right? By the Correct. people that they're actually connecting to on a day-to-day basis. Yep. So now let's talk about,
1: um, you know, the devil's in the details. And I mean, I what is it's fascinating to see how people have of all the work that you did with this campaign, um, an initiative, the thing that people, you know, um, that people got frustrated over was the logo. Now, the Mm -hmm. only the first question I'll ask you was, you know, um, and it is such an iconic logo, and so it's it's so fascinating that um, it maybe be maybe afterwards shared. You, I'm guessing you discovered more passion around that iconic logo, perhaps than was anticipated going in. Um, did you ever have? Did you ever have a moment of pause where you're like, "Ooh, but this is such an iconic logo, and this I don't want this to overshadow." The depth of priority in this initiative. How did you sort of make those those
2: choices when you're going through the process? Well, look, I mean, it's an iconic logo. I mean, we we all know it. It has like over ninety percent brand recognition. Um it's not just that we know it. We all love it. And nobody was planning on replacing an iconic logo. I mean it's just not even remarkable it's not even in the cards, right? But I think and you know we conferred with lots of people. It wasn't a decision we made lightly. But I remember having this conversation with Shelley Lazarus, right, the grand doyen of advertising, and she said to me there's so much equity in that mark. It's an interesting strategy to build on that rather than to come up with a whole new mark, and she pointed to many campaigns cuz you know Shelley's been involved In that original campaign and every campaign since, she said it's very hard to get any campaign to break through ever since then. And Mm -hmm. so it was a strategic decision to take that mark and iterate it. We were never trying to replace it. In fact, it's going to come back out in its full glory after Memorial Day to drive tourism, which is what it was always about. But we wanted to tee off that mark and create a mark that was for this moment for New York City, in a dynamic world, which, you know, we now live in a social digital world that allows for animation, which was not the case, not only in Milton Glaser's era, but I'd like to also say in Mary Wells's era, because we all talk about Milton and don't talk about Mary. And I think that, you know, it really was a collaboration even then. And then as we worked on it, it was like, it's not about I or me, this is a moment for we. And I think that's sort of how the concept came to be. And then because of the um, lore and history of that mark, we enlisted a very well-known topographer, Graham Clifford, who actually comes from a family very much in the world of design, to actually have someone of that stature take the mark. We looked at different iterations of the mark, different topography, and then landed on um, a font, sans serif grotesque, which is really teed off of the subway. And when when he said to me, this really is off the subway, I thought, what better Um, incarnation of we. The subway is a great equalizer. We all ride the subway, no matter who we are. And it is the artery that ties us all together. And so that's sort of how it all came together. Now, did we know? I remember Graham said to me before we go, design Twitter is going to just have a field day. Um, And he was right. But I think that it was much stronger than we anticipated, You know, Jenny, I've spent a lot of my time defending press freedom as a kid who grew up in revolution and has deep roots connected to journalism. I was also amazingly stunned at how few people actually read and how much like one headline would just take off like storm and how there was sort of this like groupthink mentality that would happen that all of a sudden it was like, they're replacing I Love New York. How dare they? It's going away. Bring it back. I was like, it's not going anywhere. Like if you had actually read the story you guys wrote or the one that first came out on the Times, you would have gotten the nuance. But by the way, neither here nor there because... I mean, we literally spent just a few million dollars, not just developing the mark, because honestly, everybody was really working at very heavily discounted rates, and all the media we had was donated. So there were no tax dollars and, frankly, not a lot of dollars in general involved. But what was amazing to me was that in less than two weeks, we had $21 million of ad equivalency generated off of that conversation. And so if I go back to what was my KPI, the KPI for the entire effort was awareness, and then engagement. And conversation is engagement. I mean, I would say to you, we looked at each other in a couple of days and said to myself, look at the conversation that people are having and it's really about how much they are connected, not just to the mark, but to their city, right? So, you know what? <laughs> Shelley Lazarus wrote me, she was someplace in Asia, like on, I think, an anniversary trip. She goes, I think this is the definition of going viral. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I think like the logo don't like the logo i'm i'm incredibly um humbled frankly that people love the city as much as i do right that they actually care enough to talk about it to debate it and what is more new york than having an opinion i was like have all the opinion you want well what i think is interesting is funny you say that word nuance because that i use that
1: word a lot i um people don't have patience nor time nor interest anymore in any kind of nuance and that's mm-hmm. a conversation for another day but i think it's a shame because there's, and I think it's, there's a whole host of reasons why, but you are, you know, what you're describing to me, as you said, is there wasn't any, nobody looked behind the headlines. Nobody really took the time to really see, or, 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 or really had no, no interest. Now that it's come out, and now that all this conversation has happened, well, now people are able to, A, probably have more interest in the nuance, they're probably taking more time to read about the nuance, and they're talking about it. Like, you know what I mean? So at least I hear you on, um, you know, you've probably shared and had the, captured the attention of a lot more people who would have just walked away, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And for others, quite frankly, who maybe came out of the gate with a knee jerk,
2: I love it. They need to know too what the real rationale behind it is as well. You know, it's just the opening conversation. It was really just the hello, right? I think the proof is going to be, and can we inspire New Yorkers to do something? And frankly, I think if the first step was getting them to have a conversation, we've checked that box off in spades, right? You got to care, you got to engage for you to actually then get to the next phase of the funnel, right? One One of the things I loved was engaging with people on the topic, right? I mean, the number of people who sent me or just the "We Love New York City" you know um, email something like you know bring it back or I hate it or whatever and I took the time to write as many people personally <laughs> as I could one to just set the record scale you know straight I mean it's not a scalable solution but I also was really interested in people who would say to me you know what I really don't like your logo and, if, and I'd like to redesign it and I actually called somebody who I knew who sent me one of those and I said you know what we've just gone out fourteen million dollars of donated media we're not going to be changing the logo. As much as I appreciate your opinion, but you know what? There's other ways that you can engage. For example, one of the tests that we did, um, and Founders was part of a creative global agency network when we were working on it. And, you know, working on a private public partnership project is different than just being CMO. I just want to be clear. It is much more complicated. You're not as in control as you would be otherwise. And I remember at the time when we were having a lull, I said, I'd seen Kim, who started Paper Magazine, and she showed me an issue of paper where she had asked a bunch of creatives to come up with a poster for New York. uh, Sorry, a poster for America. And I was like, what if we did that with this creative agency network and said to them, make a poster for New York. No compensation. Anybody can participate. You don't have to be the lead person in an agency. And let's see what we get. So they put that ask out. It said literally, what is a poster you can imagine for New York? The only requirement is that somewhere you have to use this mark. So it wasn't, you know, blaring, we love New York, just somewhere it had to be a signature. And they got over 30 posters from around the world, from Singapore to South Africa to Ireland. Within two weeks, they all came in. Nobody had seen their others. One was more magnificent than the other. It was just somebody's interpretation. And we actually used about 26 of them in wild postings when we launched the campaign and my favorite was meeting Maxie, who flew in from Ireland to see his poster in real life. Mm. Like, I mean, what is more New York than that, that he would get on a plane to come see his work in the wild, whether in the windows of Macy's or you know, in a wild posting in Williamsburg, and be just absolutely blown away that he got to participate in that and then you know give an interview and get to meet everybody. And I think that that's the energy of New York where anything is possible, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's not something that's just to those of us who live here. It's actually New York's brand outside of, you know, the four walls of our city. And so I think we started the conversation. I reached out to Bill. I said, you know, you can send in a poster and we're going to reveal his poster shortly because he actually took up the invitation, which I was so pleased with. Mm-hmm. Um, another gentleman who did some sketches um, sort of organically and had them published in the Times. We're in touch and I'm trying to figure out a way for him to step in and use his superpower, which is designed to help the city. Uh, another um Creative actually sent me a. No- I mean, not sent me a note. Posted about wanting to do a song, and I got in touch, and I said, "I'd like to hear the idea for a song." I mean, to me, this is about an invitation, yeah. not to be cool or super trendy or whatever. But if you care enough that you're willing to write something, you know, write a poster, create a poster, imagine a song, like it's it's up to me to pick up the phone and find out more and see if I can help in some way, not just me, but this initiative that is We Love New York City to help see if we can unlock that because that's what we means. It doesn't mean me or my project or I'm the visionary. No, that is not what this effort is about. This is about New York hustle and us all coming together in a world where we are so divided that every day we're reading about a school shooting because nobody has the patience to dig beyond the surface. And I say to you, You know what, if we've learned anything in these last two years is I've gotten to know my neighbors. And one of them said to me in the middle of the pandemic, this is the longest I've ever spoken to you and you've lived in that building for 23 years because I was always running to the subway or to the plane or whatever. Like, you know what, there's a loneliness epidemic there, there is a mental health crisis. Our world is divided, and it is up to us to find a pathway to see each other as humans and find a way where we can all step in and find a, a place to be part of the solution.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, putting your your former CMO hat on, um, besides the things you just mentioned, what is the next step? You know, in this overall strategy, how do you think about it?
2: Um, well a, a lot of the immediate next step for us and like i said it's really about civic action but a lot of the next steps are about collaboration because mm-hmm. the we is not about us right today vml YNR and the department of sanitation announced a campaign for lit- for the department of sanitation to get people to not litter now mm-hmm. is it the sanitation's department job to pick up litter yes this is a complicated city. We generate tons of litter. I'm always grateful for the, you know, um, garbage people who show up in the morning to pick up my garbage. I mean, I know it's their job, but I don't take that for granted, right? Okay. And so having a campaign that reminds people who have gotten new dogs in the middle of the pandemic that like, yeah, don't leave your poop out on the street. Yeah. I'm here for that, right? Right. Um, and I think good for Jessica Tish and the VMLY and team for a great campaign That is something we're enabling, right? We're using our donated media space to amplify that effort. We're in conversations with um, with the MTA about a project that we're going to be announcing um, where you get to actually get involved in the um, selection of the performers who actually perform underground and remind us that our subway system is amazing and that there's Mm -hmm. incredible artists that share music from around the world with us on our daily commute. We're in conversations with the public library to do something around reading. I mean, so this is really now an effort to bring other people and initiatives into the fold, including the mayor's initiative to get us all to volunteer, right? One hour from each New Yorker is 8.5 million hours. There's not a shortage of things to actually do, but it's a matter of picking them, figuring out how to put your marketing muscle behind it to make noise, get the conversation going and drive participation, right? And I think um, we also have to remind each other and and I do it all the time because I post it on Nextdoor even though I don't work there anymore, I still use the thought. (laughs) And I said something about, um, I think it was about the Red Sox ad that got lots of conversation. And somebody said, oh, we is bullshit. Nobody does that, that's just so Pollyanna. And I said, you know what? That may be, the, um, I appreciate that that's your opinion, but I'm here to tell you that literally with 10 strangers who I met on next door, we we enabled a neighborhood gathering, a lunch from 12 to two on October of this past year where 500 neighbors came and actually sat down and had a meal together. Mm. It's possible. And yeah. I say that as somebody who's actually been part of the movement that's seen it happen. It's mm. not arbitrary. It's not an academic exercise for me. I, I've seen it happen. and. I say all the time, you know, Jenny, when I say like, if I can become CMO, anybody can become CMO. I'm like, if I can make this happen, anybody can make it happen, right? It's not like there's something special or I'm the smartest person in the room or the most creative person. I just got hustle. And um, guess what? You know what? New Yorkers have a lot of hustle and frankly, (laughs) a lot of heart, a lot, a lot of heart.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and unfortunately, we've seen that in some other troubled times. But man, it's it it is what gets us to the next level, right? It is what enables the city to um, get to better a better place. So yes, it's all possible. Um, I mentioned passion earlier to you. Are you living your like? Is this your dream job? Is this where you're at? And you know, again, this podcast is marketing vanguard, which is all about people who are through their individual decisions, driving change, that's actually the literal definition of a vanguard is like people who through their choices, decisions and ideas are literally driving change. Um, And, you know, whether it's in industry or in their present companies, um, it's all about that. So, I mean, you are such an example of that. Um, But having said all that, you know, how do you think about this role right now for you as being um, the best harness or it's harnessing your your superpower right you're what had made you great as a CMO you know this is next level um, and what are the key decisions that you think you've made certainly now but at any other point in your career that you think have been that you're most proud of that you feel like have driven the greatest business impact and- beyond just brand impact
2: Well, there's a lot of questions in that, Jenny.
1: I know, Um, I'm terrible at that. I always ask too many questions. uh,
2: uh, Well, let me see. I mean, look, I think that for me, I was fortunate enough to be in a career where I could step off the day job and do a job that's not about the money because this is not what this project is about. And also to believe enough to be able to get other people to come in, right? I mean, that's what it takes. When you do a passion project, Nobody's coming in for the cash, right? That's not what's motivating anybody who's in this project. I mean, we're looking for somebody to do some project work. And I said, like, you got to love this project. you got to love New York City and believe, because otherwise this is not the right project for you. Because it takes a lot to make something like this come together. I mean, a lot of fortitude, a lot of grit, a lot of... um, you know, long hours. So you really do have to believe because otherwise you're like, why am I doing this? It's clearly not for the money, right? So fine. Um, in that sense, I do think it's it's been the culmination of a lot of different parts of my career to this moment, as you've sort of described at the beginning. Look, I used to make lists when I was in college of things I was passionate about. I sort of grew up in a family that um, you know thought you should pursue your passion, that that was really the path to success and happiness. On my list was always New York City, always. Mm -hmm. I mean, I came here for college. I went to Barnard. I say it's the city and the school that gave me voice. It gave me community and a sense of belonging. And frankly, it's where I've raised my family. Um, And so I say to you, like, New York has always been on the list. I used to make Mm -hmm. lists of things I cared about. Media was one of them. New York City was always, always, always one of them. So in that sense, I feel like it's, um, I'm in a fortunate position to be able to serve, I'm not in government, but I'm getting to serve through the Partnership for New York. And it's kind of a perfect place, actually, because Kathy Wilde has different superpowers. She appreciates, like, the marketing strategy piece that we bring to the fold. She's an amazing assembler of different constituents that are key to success in a city like this, right? She she brought the mayor, the governor, the labor unions, um, all the different commissioners to the party, including all of the CEOs that actually have a lot of weight in the city, right? So- this only happens when partnership comes together. Again, like not me, but we, um, and not just her, but her staff, like all of her board members, like it's, it's a, it's a real effort and journey. So I I do think it is the culmination of a lot of things combined for me. Um, where that leads, who knows, you know, Jenny, I never had a plan. I never had a one-year plan, much less a five-year plan. So why would this be any different? <laughs> um, and then I, I think, You know, back in my career, which was the second question you asked, I mean, I think there were so many decisions. You look back and you see the through line. Like for me, purpose was something I think I got early because I did live through a revolution. I did recognize that there was this tenuousness to life and that somehow I wanted to make a difference. And what that form was, I don't think I had ever had any idea. Um, And each job taught you something. I'm super grateful for my time at Nextdoor. Working with uh, that management team and then, like, just everybody who showed up there in the middle of the pandemic really committed to making sure that neighbors could be there for each other.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, that was also an incredibly pure pure purpose that got us all in the middle of the pandemic, not making bread, but trying to figure out how to enable groups to function on next door. Totally. Yeah. Um, so I think that each thing sort of builds on the next. They don't all work out in your career. There's been moments of, you know, absolute failure in every single job, frankly. We don't always talk about those. But, you know, I, I sort of like to talk about all the problems and all the difficulties because I think then that sort of makes everybody recognize that they're not alone. And in, in what is a long journey, right? It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And so, you know, I'm I'm grateful for the partnerships that have allowed us to come to this moment. Um, and we'll see what the next moment brings. But what I can tell you after having you know heard about the latest school shooting, um, which happened again today, it's like I am more and more convinced that community in real life matters. It matters for us to be able to take the time not just to see each other, but like really see and hear each other and find a pathway forward. It is not a coincidence that you're seeing so much conversation about the need for civic engagement today, whether it's Richard Haas's book, what David Brooks has been writing, what Doris goodwin Kearns talks about, about the 60s. It is up to us. It is not up to somebody else to solve all the problems for us. I, I just, I haven't seen that in my life. And honestly, I'm so grateful for the younger generation who has taught us that we need to use our voice and to say things that maybe we grew up thinking we weren't allowed to say for pushing us all to be more authentic every day and for not settling. Right. I think like that, that's what it's about. And so I loved working at Nextdoor. I loved learning from all the different people I got to work with there. They taught me about boundaries. They they taught me that some days you needed to say I need a mental health day. That just wasn't a thing we grew up in, right? I, I my expectation was like, yeah, if they ask you to sleep under your desk, like you'll be doing that. Um right. I mean, that's sort of the world I grew up in. And i, I or and on I, top of your it, desk too. Or on top of your desk. Exactly. <laughs> yes, and the bunk that they made over your desk. Um so, so I think we're in a different window of time. And, you know, I, we, they posted a meme off of the Barbie movie the other day. And I was like, I don't even get that. But I was like, oh, I'm just going to go try it. And the muscle memory of trying to figure out how to make that and erase my background or whatever. I was like, it's okay not to be cool because I learned things. And I, and I think that that's what it's going to take, right? It's going to take those of us who it's like we're in a turnaround. New York is in a turnaround. The world is in a turnaround. You know what I can tell you, having done a lot of work in turnarounds, you have to respect the people who've been there, who have the history, and you have to invite new voices in. And you need them to come together to find a pathway together. The thing I've noticed getting closer to government is that, of course, there's a lot of people who've had the patience to go to community board meetings, And if they were going to solve the problem, it would have been solved by now. What they need is people who never went to those meetings, who have new ideas, to appreciate the work they put in, and to come up with new solutions, be respectful, and find a pathway together. That is the only way I've seen a turnaround work, and I consider what we're in today a turnaround. We'll be back with more Marketing Vanguard after this quick
1: break. Alright, so Miriam, I gotta ask you, um
2: I really <laughs> Wait, you're
1: all crazy. <laughs> uh, no, 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 but I am very curious. Social media is, is the genie out of the, I mean, it's just such oh, a obvious is. question, but it's like everything you're talking about is we just need like community. We need people to come together. We need bar- backyard barbecues. We need like, you know, people to go to the meetings, but social media, can we ever get back there with the huge barrier? It's, that, it's, media of,
2: that, that genie is out of the box, right? Or Ugh. whatever. It's, I mean, believe me, I see it with my teenagers. I see, I mean, they're not teaching teenagers. They're like in their early twenties. It is so bad. Now, on the flip side, it really has connected us, and you can get a message out and you're not dependent on the woman who controls the email for the block association. Like there's good and bad. Um I think we need to find each other in real life. I really do. I think there is this digital thing, like digital. and like i I do believe in that. But it's so funny when I say to people like we did that party on the street, not as part of this effort. I just did it as New York City next because I was like, I know there's something in that. And then, you know, eventually somebody was like, I I like your idea. And I was like, "Okay, OK, you know what? You're crazy enough. Let's go do this together. And it was like being back in college. I put flyers under windshield wipers. That moment where literally 500 people showed up, Jenny, I mean, I could not have imagined. I was like 100 people are going to show up. I mean, I didn't say that out loud when we started and I rented the 400 chairs. But 500 people showed up, old, young You know, just every color of the rainbow and basically brought their own food and sat and had a meal for two hours.
1: It's amazing. And
2: that included the police and the ENT and the you know what I mean? Like you need people to come together and to be like, oh my and now when I walk down the street, people are like, Did you see what happened with the poop guy or that person? But you're just more connected. Yeah. And I see even in my own neighborhood of Chelsea where there's a corner they can't seem to solve. The sense of like, you know what? We have these meetings and nothing happens. And mm. I go back to Benjamin Franklin. Are you telling me that 10 smart people can't come together and solve any problem? I don't believe it. Yeah. Put the If you put the time in and you get the right 10 smart people together, they will make a difference. And you got to make a difference on the really hard problems to get people to believe that you can make a difference. You know what I what? mean? Like, that's the answer. What can marketers do to
1: help in that problem? Well, I mean, you know, they've got they've got social media. They're obsessed with
2: social media. They got social media nailed. So the thing about about marketers, it's so interesting. As I get closer to a lot of these government organizations or even some of these just like organizations that have been civically engaged, they don't have strategic, strong marketing and comms people at the table. They Mm. don't. Because guess what? You go to one of those community board meetings and you're not going to share this. It's like you're like, oh, my God, what is happening? Four hours later, you're like, wait, what happened to me? right? So you need new voices. You need different people who are slightly different, who are going to bring innovation to the table, who are bridge builders. You need them to care. I mean, what we used was what we learned as marketers, right? Like that's how we arranged the party on the t- on the street. It's not like there was some magic sauce here. Yeah. It, the communications aspect is huge. The communications Telling aspect the is huge. Yeah. You yeah. got to tell the story and bring people along. Yeah. And guess what marketers are good at? That. Yep. Yeah. Um, Another fun, fun question I like to ask
1: um, in this conversation, (laughs) so we're going to do a little bit of a left turn, but um, I like to use the metaphor for, you know, using a sports analogy. I played soccer growing up. I love the framework of a field and, and the players who are on that field. And so whether it's soccer or something else. And even if you've never played a sport, it's the concept of you've got the strikers on the front who are going for goal. You've got the midfielders who are basically kind of holding the line, the connective tissue between the front, you know, people who are trying to score up front and the people defending the goal. And then you've got the defensive people at the back who are just protecting that goal at all costs, making sure with everything they've got to not let offensive kicks come in. Where are you
2: on the field? I played in the defensive position. So I grew up in Iran where we grew up with soccer. And then came to the States where there was no soccer, but I definitely played, I played in the back. You protected the goal. I protected. Yeah. What it's do you think that... Why I'm protecting my city.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mistakes. Sometimes we learn the best. And I've talked to so many CMOs who are like, I just, I'm i am kind of not, I don't, want. I've heard all the great success stories, but I want to hear the missteps. I want to hear the mistakes. I want to hear even the failures that people learn from because we're all making them. Um what's one that you would point to that you learned from tremendously over the course I, of your I career? took a
2: job mid-career and, uh, you know, it had all the trappings of a perfect job. And within a week, I knew it was a mistake. I, I mean, I just knew it like a weekend. I was like, what the heck has just happened to me? <laughs> and um, I ended up leaving that job. I mean, it was a big mistake. I actually, Like for years, I didn't even have it on my resume because it was so short-lived. It was like, okay, it was like a blip. But it's it's the mistake that actually led me to go off on my own, leave the corporate arena, because by that point I was pregnant. I was like, who's going to hire a pregnant person? I mean, it was just a mess. And so that step off that then led me to start a bag business and then a very successful like solopreneuring business, like changed my career, honestly, like absolutely changed the trajectory of my career. Um, And it was a huge, I mean, it was a huge mistake in some ways, right? It was a huge mistake the way we traditionally define them. Because um, I took a job and I was like, a weekend. I was like, mm, this is really, really not good.
1: Hmm. Um, How long did was,
2: you stay? Um, I I ended up staying maybe like a couple of months at the max. I mean, wow. the guy running the group was it was it was a mess of of disproportionate sorts, um, and you know. They sort of, they ended up calling me in one day because there was other stuff going on in that group that clearly was not kosher. And so they sort of called me in and I was like, I, I was like, I know I just got here. I've never seen anything like this before. And they paid me out for a couple months. And I was like, I, I mean, I knew within the first or second week, but I was like, what am I going to do now? You know, by this point, job switching wasn't that kosher and I'd already had five jobs. So I was like, okay, now what am I going to do? And so that's when I had started pretty soon. I'd started taking this, oh my God, this class on making accessories at FIT because I was like, how hard could it be? And literally I made the ugliest um, belts and bags known to mankind, but in the process met a woman. And so I left there and started a bag business, like totally <laughs> randomly. Um, but it changed my life. And it, wow. it actually really ch- ended up changing my life. And even though I didn't totally end up going in the bag business, it was sort of the thing I had going while I started doing consulting. And honestly, like it changed my life financially. It changed my perspective on all kinds of things. It showed me that I could just make shit happen, right? Like without having the whole structure. Um, it, it was like one of the most visible failures in the sense that it was just bad decision making. Although, honestly, I don't know that I, I mean. Suffered anything now, from it. Yeah. Looking back, I actually think it was the best thing that ever happened to me. But you know, mm-hmm. when you're in it, you're like, now what? Mm-hmm. Um, but it it changed, that decision changed the trajectory for me. So mm-hmm it took me off of the corporate game for five years. Then when I came back in, I was at a totally different place mentally, just even financially. It just was, it was a game changer. Amazing. Amazing. Um, I could talk to
1: you for hours more on all of this. Is there anything else though, uh, specific to, um, to the, we love NYC, um, campaign and I mean, experience I, that you want to I mean, share?
2: I think the thing about We Love New York City is that it's not about us. It's an invitation. So everybody should think of it as an invitation as to how they can step in and get involved. I've had um, consulting companies come to me with ideas and we figure out how they can do what they do and leverage the campaign in in a way that helps the city. You know, you you saw the sanitation example with VML, r So it's not even like they all have to be agencies we bring to the um, fore you know, there's so many ways to help New York. So it, it doesn't mean we won't do them with corporate partners. It just means we've opened the conversation and said, find a way. And whatever way it is, our job is to help try and enable that, right, and amplify it. The last quick
1: question is, who's next? Um, we have a spirit of pay it forward here with Marketing Vanguard. And so um, as much as we love talking to people who are um, who through their visibility and their experience and their innovation and influence are, are driving this industry forward. We also love to use this as an opportunity to meet new people and sort of also um, bring them onto the show. So who would be the next industry leader you recommend we interview for Marketing Vanguard? And that can be a CMO or otherwise.
2: Okay. Well, the person I think you should interview is Deborah Martin-Chase. And the reason I love Deborah Martin Chase is because she's not on all of radars. And frankly, she's reinvented herself multiple times from having been the producer of Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants to Cheetah Girls to Princess Diaries to being the first black producer of a network TV show, which is The Equalizer. Love it. I mean, Deborah is a firebrand and not one to have been defined easily. And frankly, she is. She lives between New York and LA. She has gone on recently to produce Broadway shows. I think she's just a great, great role model um, because she continues to reinvent herself. And frankly, you know, now in her career, she just got a huge Vanity Fair profile about reinventing yourself, right? And I think one of the things about all of us is we tend to fall in our lane of our industry or Mm -hmm. discipline. And I think that it's really great to expand our aperture and bring in people from the outside. And Deborah, by definition, is a marketer because guess what? When you create content, you have to care about who gets to see it. Okay. But she's not your traditional marketer. And I think um, the world of entertainment and content has diametrically changed. And hearing from somebody who's been there for a long time but continues to evolve is a really, really great uh, you know learning opportunity for all of us, including- um, Love that. Love that. So we will invite
1: her on. So, Deborah, if you're listening, we'll be reaching out. Um, but, Miriam, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure as always, and um, I just hope next time we can have a cup of coffee and a conversation in person. So,
2: you're going to come to the next longest I table. Will. <laughs> I will. I
1: continue to dream of parties on the street, Jenny.
2: <laughs> oh my God, who
1: doesn't? It's fantastic, and now we're getting the good weather coming in. Exactly. So exactly. All, all the For more me. doable. <laughs> love it. All right. All right, my friend. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Marketing Vanguard, part of the Adweek Podcast Network and ACAST Creator Network. This podcast was produced by Jordan Pretano, executive produced by Al Manarino and John Heil, and edited by Lane McGibney at Batwell Studios. You can listen and subscribe to all of Adweek's podcasts by visiting adweek.com
1: podcasts. Stay updated on all things Adweek Podcast Network by following us on Twitter at Adweek Podcasts. And if you have a question or suggestion for the show, send us an email at podcast at adweek.com. Thanks for listening.